we all know who we are, but you might want to quickly sure. just introduce yourself. So yeah, so I'm Austin Argentieri. I'm a second year MPhil in medical anthropology. Uh, so what I'm going to talk about today uh, are plus, so I'm going to be talking about placebos and phenomenology, and specifically what these might be able to teach us about how our bodies are in relation to disease and illness. Um, now the inspiration for this talk came to me while actually attending the Phenomenology and Health Conference here in March, where it struck me that a lot of the presenters uh, were drawing on who were drawing on phenomenology were still using a distinction between disease and illness. Uh, and particularly after Javi Carell's paper on the first night of the conference, there was a somewhat heated debate afterwards on whether or not using a distinction between disease and illness was appropriate in approaching disease from a phenomenological point of view. And so I thought it might prove to be a fruitful discussion here to talk about the ways that I believe phenomenology actually breaks down this distinction between disease and illness. Uh, and to illustrate this, I'd like to draw from some recent research into, into the placebo effect. Um, and specifically, what I'll be presenting here draws from some of the preliminary literature research that I've done to lay a foundation for my DPhil fieldwork, uh, which I'll begin this fall investigating the effect of placebo medicines on chronic illnesses like um, irritable bowel syndrome and chronic fatigue. So to begin with some background, the disease-illness distinction has been in use within medical anthropology since the late 1970s with the work of Leon Eisenberg and Arthur Kleinman. And it positions illness as a subjective and social experience of suffering that differs from the biological or pathological reality of a disease. And it's a distinction that furthermore draws heavily upon the possibility of neatly dividing between biological and social aspects of everyday life. Uh, this distinction is still very much in use today, and some like Bjorn Hoffman have taken up this distinction between disease and illness and added a third category of sickness, which corresponds to how, quote, negative bodily occurrences, unquote, are conceived by society and its institutions. Um, but characterizing illness in this negative way seems to pervade a lot of the phenomenological literature on medicine and health, which includes Javi Carell's 2008 book, Illness. Um, Frederick Sphineas also in his 2000 book, The Hermeneutics of Medicine and the Phenomenology of Health, also uses Heidegger to characterize illness as an unhomelike being in the world, uh, where there's a lack of rhythm and balance in one's body. Uh, and as we saw several weeks ago in this seminar series, Drew Later has also characterized the body and illness as one of disappearance, pointing to the illness as a dysfunctional state of the body. But the question I'd like to begin with is whether this is the right way to characterize illness in the first place. Is illness really the case of a dysfunctioning body, or is this characterization too caught up in the normative, medicalized way of seeing diseases and diseased bodies as pathological states. If instead, we begin with a phenomenological understanding of the body, then we recognize it as being pre-objectively entangled with the biological, social, and environmental worlds around it, which necessarily include viruses, bacteria, and the many different social and environmental causes of diseases. Uh, from this view, then, I take illness not so much to be a dysfunctional state of the human body, but rather as an exemplification of the very way in which the of the very way in which the body is positioned towards the world. As Merleau-Ponty writes, quote, "The subject that I am, understood concretely, is inseparable from this particular body and from this particular world." End quote. In fact, our bodies are in contact with 
with bacteria and viruses all the time, and this interaction often actually improves bodily functioning through, keeping, through helping to develop immunity and through creating competitive ecological environments within our bodies that keep certain infections and illnesses at bay. So in other words, I'd like to begin by calling into question whether the disease body is truly a dysfunctioning one, or whether it's rather persisting with a certain style of being precisely as it always has, at least from a phenomenological point of view. This style of being is simply being in the world where the world includes diseases, viruses, and harmful environments that work on our bodies on the pre-objective level to produce different disease states. But this sort of rhetorical point aside, the question still remains whether we can rightly establish a clear division between a disease state and an illness state. And as I see it, such a distinction isn't always congruent with the ways that both bodies and worlds are characterized in the works of, in the phenomenology of Merleau-Ponty, and specifically within his Phenomenology of Perception and his last unfinished work, The Visible and the Invisible. As Merleau-Ponty explains, our bodies, both biologically and physically, are always already connected to the world. Merleau-Ponty notes that, quote, insofar as I inhabit a physical world, where consistent stimuli and typical situations are discovered, my life is made up of rhythms that do not have their reason in what I've chosen to be, but rather have their condition in the banal milieu that surrounds me, end quote. This is to say that our surroundings and environment condition our immediate experience of being. The body, in this sense, as Thomas Shortus explains it, is a, quote, setting in relation to the world. The body, in this view, is not first a unified group of organs that then confront the things around them. Rather, the body is an immediate openness onto things and onto the world. Thomas Shortus furthermore reminds us that the world that our bodies are in relation to is in no way a pre-cultural world, but rather that our pre-objective connection to the world is a connection to a deeply cultural and social world in addition to a purely physical one. Our bodies are therefore deeply influenced and mediated by social and cultural interaction, and these can furthermore alter our biologies, and importantly, these both also affect our body's ability to interact with and fight off disease, and alter the biological progression of disease within our bodies. So take one brief example to illustrate this, which is the case of tuberculosis. Tuberculosis has been called a social disease by many, as its transmission is facilitated by close contact between people. And so not surprisingly then, growing agricultural and industrial and urban environments have played a heavy role in the biological spread of tuberculosis throughout the world over the past few centuries. Jean and René Dubo showed in the 1950s that our body's ability to mount an immune response to tuberculosis bacteria is directly related to social and environmental well-being. And in one rather dramatic study, they showed that many who were on the brink of death from tuberculosis in concentration camps during the Second World War were actually able to overcome the disease uh, through their immune system response when decent shelter, food, and peace of mind were provided to them when they left the camps. Through this example, we can begin to see a bit how not only social and environmental worlds, but also social experience of the world itself can have a direct effect upon the biological progression of disease within our own bodies. This calls into serious doubt any kind of sharp division between a biological disease state and a social experience of such a disease, especially when we remember that interaction with human bodies and human social worlds has also directly shaped and influenced the biological evolution of different virus and bacteria over many centuries. So what I'd like to discuss here then is how investigating the placebo effect offers a particularly rich, rich way to see how biological bodies and social processes are intimately connected 
in the way that I've been establishing. Uh, and thus I'd, thus I'd like to, discu to discuss how the placebo effect illustrates many of the ideas found in phenomenology regarding the connection between bodies and the world. To begin with just a point of clarification, when I speak about the placebo effect here, I'm specifically referring to the therapeutic benefit that's obtained from a medical treatment like a pill, a surgery, or an injection that's devoid of any specific physiological or pharmacological mechanism of action. And research in the placebo effect offers an unusual opportunity to illuminate some of the issues that I've brought up here because, as Daniel Mormon has said, the placebo effect is a clear case of symbolic and meaningful events involving relationship, discourse, form, belief, knowledge, commitment, and history having an apparently direct effect on human biology. Now, although the exact mechanisms through which the placebo effect works are still unknown, what we do know is that some placebos actually stimulate the body's biological healing processes. In a 2002 study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is one of the most widely read and influential journals in medicine, researchers assessed the effects of surgery for patients with severe and debilitating knee pain. The patients were divided into three groups, and in the first two groups, standard surgical techniques for treating severe arthritic knees were carried out. So in the first group, the damaged cartilage of the knee was shaved. In the second group, they flushed out the knee joint, which was supposed to remove all the material they believe causes the inflammation. The third group, however, received a fake surgery, where doctors made incisions and splashed salt, salt water on the knee as they would in normal surgery, but then simply sewed up the incision again. All three groups went through the same rehab process, but the placebo group recovered just as much functioning and pain relief in their knees as the other two groups who had actual surgery. Likewise, recent cardiovascular research has shown that the words of a physician and who administers a placebo medicine to treat coronary artery disease can improve blood flow in heart arteries and can also lessen blood vessel constriction in the heart, both of which lead to a reduction in chest pain. Also, recent neurobiological research has shown that a placebo medicine for pain relief will in some cases stimulate the exact same brain receptors in patients as their real drug counterparts. In these studies, fMRI readings of patients being given opioid drugs were compared with fMRI readings of patients who were given opioid placebo medicines, and the very same opioid receptors in the brain were activated for both groups, even though the latter placebo medicines given had no active opioid ingredients. This research I find to be extremely pertinent to the divisions that I'm trying to break down in this talk as it suggests that during successful placebo treatments, rituals and drugs use the very same biochemical pathways to influence the patient's brain. In other words, in successful placebo treatments, there's no sharp delineation between the biological or biochemical process of a disease on the one hand and the social treatment and experience of illness on the other hand as both can have localized effects in the exact same biochemical or biological parts of the body. Now, I use the term social treatment of disease here because placebos don't contain any active ingredients or treatments, and this means that when a placebo effect is effect, or when a placebo treatment is effective, this points to the direct effect of clinical spaces and the words, gestures, and touches of the physician on different biological treatment outcomes for patients. In fact, some researchers at Harvard have recently begun to investigate exactly this issue and have developed placebo-only clinical trials to try to confirm this. In one such trial, instead of having one active drug trial group and one placebo group, as is normally done in randomized controlled trials, they gave two groups placebo treatments for irritable bowel syndrome. 
but instead varied the quality of patient-physician interaction for each group. In one group, there was very little interaction between the physician and the patient, but in the second group, the, per the participants had great attention lavished upon them for at least 20 minutes. And in this group, the physician was also required to touch the hands or the shoulders of the patient and to spend at least 20 seconds lost in thoughtful silence as if seriously contemplating their condition. And the results showed that in the absence of active drugs being given to any of the patients, the varied quality interac and interaction between patient and physician seemed to directly affect patient outcomes, with the second group exhibiting much better treatment outcomes than the one with hardly any interaction with physicians. Now, the prevailing theories that are used to explain how the placebo effect works draw upon psychological notions of expectation and conditioning and deception. However, there's been some recent pilot ethnographic work undertaken by some researchers at Harvard that's problematized these theories. And they've done this by interviewing patients enrolled in clinical trials and finding that they actually don't usually report any prior expectation for a placebo medicine to work. Uh, and in separate studies, these same researchers have found that even when placebo treatments are open-label, which means that patients are told they're being given a placebo, these placebos can still initiate successful recoveries in patients. And so therefore, current thinking is that placebos can't be really explained totally by the effect of psychological deception or expectation, and so there must be some additional kind of physical or social interaction that either activates this expectation in patients or which just simply produces therapeutic cess directly. In this vein, some researchers have more recently proposed that touch might be an important aspect of placebo treatments that produce therapeutic benefit through some kind of ritual touch healing or through stimulating the release of oxytocin in the brain, which is known to be a sort of feel-good chemical that your brain releases. My own understanding is that the placebo effect is a phenomenon arising from our bodily experience of clinical spaces and not solely arising from a patient's mind. In the absence of any real or active drugs, there must be something about the way the placebos are administered, either in the interactions or the environments in which they're given, which directly initiates the kind of bodily healing processes in patients that I've just outlined. For these reasons, several prominent scientific researchers have actually recently proposed phenomenology as a potentially new and useful way with which we can investigate and understand the placebo effect. And in fact, I'll be working with some of these placebo researchers next year for my DPhil research. Uh, and one of the projects that we're going to be working on is to try to connect Merleau-Ponty and Thomas Shortis's ideas more concretely to current placebo research and to make these phenomenological ideas more palatable and understandable to, phys to practicing physicians so that they can understand what kind of effects that their interaction with patients and the clinical spaces that they set up for them have on patients' bodies. Um, now, this kind of relationship between bodies of patients and clinical spaces or interaction resonates very strongly with Lisa Blackman's discussion of affect. As she writes, affect, or quote, affect is not a thing, but rather refers to processes of life and vitality, which circulate and pass between bodies, end quote. In her view, instead of taking bodies as closed physiological or biological systems, there are open processes which, quote, extend into and are immersed into worlds. That is, in this view, bodies are defined by their variability to be open to and affected by the world around them. This kind of phenomenological view of bodies helps us to understand how placebo medicines can produce very real biological and physiological healing through touch, through social experience of clinical space, and through the affect that passes between the bodies of patients and physicians. 
I'd like to argue that this kind of view of bodies as processes that are defined by their openness and connectedness to the world around them is precisely the view that Merleau-Ponty proposes. As I've discussed here, in this view, illness or disease is not a dysfunctioning of the human body, but rather the epitome of some of its defining characteristics. That is, illness demonstrates the very closeness and entanglement of our bodies with the biological, social, and physical worlds around us. And this kind of phenomenological view, furthermore, necessitates that we see our body's biological functioning and the biological progression of disease within our own bodies as being intimately entangled with the social experience of our own disease states and with the larger clinical, social, and environmental spaces within which we dwell. That is, our bodies are not only made to physically suffer from viruses and bacteria, but they also physically suffer from social relations and suffer history as well. To characterize this kind of closeness between bodies and worlds, Heidegger uses the term dwelling in being and time to characterize our being in the world, for not only are we in the world spatially, but our bodies belong to the world. Likewise, our diseased bodies equally belong to the world, and have their condition in the many social, physical, and environmental worlds that we are a part of. Through investigating the placebo effect, we can begin to see this entanglement a bit more clearly. Thanks. Cool.